Luke 19, the entire context has to do with money. I have never preached more about money in my entire ministry, but Luke talks about it so often. Uh, going back to, to chapter 18, where he, he speaks of this rich young ruler um, who, wa- who wants, he wants to know about eternal life, comes to Jesus, how can I have eternal life? Jesus tells him, go give, tells him, give everything you have to the poor, sell it, give it away, or sell your stuff, give it to the poor, and follow me. He won't do it. We see a very poor man that comes to Jesus quite readily there at the end of chapter 18. And then we meet Zacchaeus last week who comes and he's an extremely wealthy man. And uh, he comes to know Jesus and then voluntarily gives up half of his possessions right then and there, half of everything he owns. And then if he's ever bilked anyone out of money and he as a good accountant would be able to go through and find all the people that he had cheated, he's going to give them back four times what what he took from them, which is amazing. And so, in the context of this money usage, we get in chapter 9, this is right on the the tail end of of the message of Zacchaeus. Remember, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's in the town of Jericho, which is about 17, 18 miles away from Jerusalem. You have to ascend to Jerusalem from there. And so, in chapter 19, verse 11, while they were listening to these things, well, what what Jesus had just been saying was um, about Zacchaeus' conversion, people were upset. Why would you... Give salvation to someone who is such a cheat. He's a tax collector. He's a, he's a traitor to his people. Why would you do that? But Jesus said, look, the Son of Man, who Jesus is, that prophesied figure in Daniel chapter 7, who comes at the end of the age to set up his eternal kingdom, the Son of Man, he says in chapter 19, or yeah, chapter 19, verse 10, has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's why I came, guys. If you're upset with me for saving a lost sinner... He's, I'm sorry. Sorry, I'm not sorry. I came to save the lost. And so while they're listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And note this, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So the context here is that Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He has spent three and a half years walking around the land of Israel There's no sick people left in town, typically, unless you just haven't made it to Jesus or you're just too stubborn to to come to Jesus for healing. There's no one sick left. The blind have been made to see. The deaf can hear. The mute can talk. Uh, People uh, that were once a mess have now been forgiven. Prostitutes, tax collectors, as in the case of Zacchaeus, people who have this horrible, guilty conscience are relieved of it through Jesus' words, through his forgiveness He passes that on to them. People that couldn't walk are walking. People that were dead are alive. And so it's natural that for those among the crowd who think he's the Messiah, or better put, who know he's the Messiah, to think he's going to Jerusalem where he is going to set up his kingdom. He's going to overthrow Rome, who is the reigning power. The Jews hated him. He's going to go in there and he's going to sit on the throne where David himself once sat a thousand years prior. The greatest king in all of Israel was King David, the second king in Israel after King Saul, as you know, reigned from 1010 B.C. to 970 B.C. He was God's right-hand man. He was a man after God's own heart, the scripture tells us. Jesus, as the son of David, the blind man called him the son of David at the end of chapter 18, he's going into Jerusalem, and boom, he's going to become king. Now, I'm going to flip over to the left, and I'm going to go from Luke. I'm going I'm to hit Mark. I'm going to hit... Um, Matthew, and that's the end of the New Testament, and I'm going to thumb through some of these pages are are going to be sticking together in your Bibles because you're not reading them. You're going to go through Malachi, Zechariah, and that's where I want you to be, in Zechariah. If you get to Haggai and Zephaniah, Zephaniah is not Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14. If you know your last four books of the Old Testament, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Zechariah chapter 14. So in the context of of Luke's parable, I'm sorry, of Jesus' parable in the gospel of Luke, the people of Israel think, at least the believers of Jesus, foremost the 12 disciples of Jesus, think that he's going into town, going to set up his kingdom. No doubt, at least I say no doubt, I would say little doubt, they have in mind um, prophecies from the Old Testament like Zechariah 14 in verse 4 
Or verse 3, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. By the way, the Mount of Olives is just east of the great temple in Jerusalem. It's a stone's throw. Well, it's a long stone's throw. But when you stand on the Mount of Olives, the temple is right there. You go through the Kidron Valley, and it's right there. If you ever been to Jerusalem, you know it's right there. It's beautiful. The Dome of the Rock sits in there now. And they, this is what the Scripture says. So they think Jesus is coming in from Jericho. He's going to come in, stand on the Mount of Olives. There in verse 4 again, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. And this is speaking of the coming, the second coming of Christ, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will split, will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. So in other words, when Jesus returns, he will ascend, I say descend from heaven, and his feet will touch the Mount of Olives. And when it does, that Mount of Olives will split this way. It will create a valley. If, if that wall is the, the east gate to the temple, and I'm on the Mount of Olives from this pulpit, and I'm Jesus, I stand here. What, when he stands on the Mount of Olives, the ground will break open like this, north to south. And it will create a path straight into the temple where our king will march. Now, the Old Testament doesn't speak of a second coming. If the Messiah is here and the 12 disciples believe that he's here, then this is what's going to happen. If they know this passage, and they did, this is what they would be thinking. We're going to Jerusalem. In fact, in Mark's gospel, James and John are asking Jesus, hey, since we're going in there, you're going to become king? Can we sit on your left and your right? They even got mama to ask. Look at verse 9 down there. Zechariah 14, 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name, the only one. Ah, no doubt they're looking forward to that day. And so they're marching into Jerusalem. I'm going to go back now to Luke 19. Because that's what Jesus knows. Because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So in order to squelch this, Jesus says in verse 12, so he said, he gives them a parable. A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called 10 of his slaves and gave 10 minas, gave them 10 minas. By the way, you might have heard certain uh, preachers that, that say minas and they'll say minas and you're going, he says minas, it's minas. I have and, and I, you know, when you look, the Greek word is actually spelled M-N-A, mana. So there isn't even an eye there. So if you want to go mina, mina, I'm going with mina. Everybody okay with it? I want to make sure. So he's, he tells this parable about a nobleman who goes to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. By the way, this is common in the old, in the ancient Near East. In fact, Herod the Great in 40 BC, you know who Herod the Great was? This great king in Jerusalem. He was part Jewish. He was part Edomite or Idumean. And he had become king. Actually, he hadn't become king. His father, Antipater, had acquired these lands for him. And now he needed to go in and become king. So the way you become king is he's a general, I should say a, a, a governor of type over the land. In 40 BC, he goes to a distant land. From Jerusalem, he goes to Rome. And he's trying to get the approval of Mark Antony. You remember Mark Antony from your history books, right? That, those books you, you had to read, you fell asleep during... Mark Antony needs to give Herod the Great the title of king. And he does. Gives him the title king of the Jews. By 37 BC, Herod the Great is reigning over uh, Israel as the king. And he is the great king. The Jews hated him. He was an incredibly gifted man, engineering-wise. He was gifted in making things beautiful and successful. He was also a madman. He was crazy. And anyone who, whom he thought might get in his way killed him, from wives to his children. Actually, he just killed one wife, I believe. Um, after that, you don't really want to marry the guy. Um, when he died in 4 BC, his sons, those that were left, he had appointed to be king. One of them's name was Archelaus. We read about him in Matthew's gospel. Herod Archelaus. Archelaus, along with Herod Antipas and Philip, made their way, after daddy died, to Rome, where Caesar Augustus is now the king the emperor of Rome, and they're going to, get, they're going to try to get um, authority from the emperor to come back and be king of the land. Archelaus went away, and he thinks he's going to come back, and he's going to be uh, the king. Actually, unfortunately for him, there were a whole group of people in Israel that hated Archelaus, 
and there was a delegation of people that went behind him and with him, and they stood before Caesar Augustus and said, no, we don't want this man reigning over us. So Archelaus returned to Israel as ethnarch, and his two brothers as tetrarch. Tetrarch means um, ruler of a fourth, and ethnarch is ruler of the nations. But they each had a fourth, Herod Antipas and Herod Philip, and Herod Archelaus had the other half. So he's not king. So this is actually a, a parable that Israel would be going, yeah, 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 we know that happens all the time. A nobleman leaving their country to go to a distant country. Some want him to be king, some don't. So this is the story. He's going to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Verse 13, and he called 10 of his slaves. So when he leaves, he's got to call his slaves. Somebody's got to look out over things. And he gave them 10 minas. And he said to them, do business with this until I come back. Um, so what you have here, Amina, is a, actually it's, it's a equivalent to three months of wages. Three months of wages. So, uh, you know, call it uh, whatever it is you make in, in three months, that's what's given to you. Each person, ten of his servants, each has the same amount. Of course, Jesus in this case is the nobleman. And where, whereas they think he's going into town to set up his kingdom immediately, Jesus is saying, no, I'm going away like noblemen do. But when I return, I'll reign. When I return, I'll reign. So Jesus is going to Jerusalem. In fact, we saw what he said back in chapter 18, verses 31 to 33. He said, look, I know what's going to happen to me. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be killed. And three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. So none of this is going to happen to Jesus by happenstance or by accident on his part. He knows where he's going. He's got to go away. For, for him, is not to leave the country. It's to leave the planet. He's got to go away. So his going away as a nobleman, in this case, would be to die, be resurrected, ascend to heaven as he did in Acts chapter 1, and then later return. And we await that return. But while he's away, as the nobleman does in this, he gives his slaves money. Amina is money. We could make it mean whatever we want to uh, and call it gifts and, and uh, a measure of faith and what have you, but it's talking about money. And in the context all around this, before and after, is about money. So he's giving them money and he says, do business with this until I come back. So we might take that and say, okay, Jesus left. We are his slaves, those of us who have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who bow to him as Lord. And we think, okay, what do I have that I'm supposed to do business with. At the very least, it's our money. At the very least. But we also know that Jesus gave gifts to the church. We call them spiritual gifts. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 to 12 says that Jesus, uh, what, when he descended from heaven, he also ascended. And when he did, he gave gifts to his people. Gifts. The gifts of, there's the gift of wisdom, there's the gift of knowledge, there's a gift of service, there's a gift of mercy, gift of administration, the gift of teaching, gift of prophecy. There's all kinds of spiritual gifts, all to be used to glorify Christ and his church. But money is certainly one of those, is it not? In fact, the gift of giving is one. And that's usually typically put for those who have a lot of money, but the gift of giving can come from people who don't have hardly anything. You don't have to be wealthy to have the gift of giving. That would be the gift of a lot. The gift of giving is just someone who wants to give away what God has given to them. In this context, it's about money because he tells them, do business until I come back. Verse 14, but his citizens hated him. And they sent a delegation after him, which is exactly what happened to Herod Archelaus. He went to Rome, and there was a whole delegation sent away after him that went and stood before Caesar Augustus and said, no, we don't want this guy. He was hated in Jerusalem. He had killed many people. In fact, although he became king in 4 BC after his dad died or became ethnarch, he was deposed by Rome in AD 6. So he reigned for about 10 years and he was said, they just said goodbye, leave. They banished him to France. That's where everybody should be banished. Who's not good, right? That, that's a joke. If you're French, I, I've never been there. What can I say? Been to the airport and that is the, low, the lower level of hell. <laughs> in Paris, that is. Citizens hated him and sent a de delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, verse 15, that's the nobleman in the parable has returned. Some didn't want him there, but he came back. And we're talking about here in the context of Jesus returning. I'm not going to Jerusalem to reign right now. I've got to go there and then be killed and raised again, ascend and come back. And when I return, when he returned, verse 15, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money, 
See, there it is, money. It's not just giftedness. He ordered that the slaves, and we'd give money, there'd be 10 of them. He called them to him. Why? So that he might know what business they had done. What business have you done? Okay. In other words, there's accountability. When Jesus returns, he's going to ask you what you did with the money he gave you. You think, well, he didn't give me any money. I worked hard for my money. Folks, if you are able to work hard, it's because God gave you that ability. If you have a job, it's because God gave you that ability. Every breath you breathe, you are stealing air from God. It's all God's. We live in His world. You aren't doing anything, we aren't doing anything that God hasn't given us the ability to do. You've seen people that come across or that bad things happen to them, accidents that, that incapacitate them by their no fault of their own. Walk out into the street, someone hits you. You're crippled. You can't, you can't run anymore. You can't walk. You can't, you can't do business anymore. Not your fault. But you were master of your own fate, weren't you? People think that. We do what God allows us to do and what a joke it is for any one of us to think that we're doing what we do. I remember when Lance Armstrong was healed of his cancer. Uh, they were um, interviewing him, whoever was interviewing him. He said, something about God. Do you give God any credit for it? And he goes, no. I worked hard for this. Lance, brother, change your name. Come on. There's only a few of us out there giving it a bad name. All glory to God. And so God is going to call us to account for what he's given to us. In this context is money. Verse 16, the first appeared saying, Master, your mina. I want you to note that. Your mina. Not the mina you gave me. Your mina. He recognizes very humbly whose mina it belongs to. It belongs to God or his master. Your mina has made 10 minas more. That's a thousand percent increase. I got one. I'm returning 10. It's pretty good. He said to him, well done, good slave. Isn't that what you want to hear? When you enter through the gates of splendor, stand before the almighty God, well done. And that is well done. To take one and make ten out of it, that was hard work. That was diligent work on his part. However he did it, we're not told how he did it, but he did. You have been faithful in a very little thing, and because you have, you are in authority over ten cities. So this nobleman has gone away, and he's come back king. He's king over the entire region. And he says, ten of the cities in my region, I'm putting you in charge of. Because you had a tenfold increase in what I gave you. It's pretty basic math, isn't it? The second, verse 18, came saying, your mina. Again, the same humility. Not the mina you gave me. Not the mina I deserved for being a great person. Your mina, master, that word for master uh, is Greek kurios. It means Lord. Your mina, Lord, has made five minas. Now, that's a fivefold increase. That's a 500% increase. That's pretty good. He doesn't get the accolades of the first one of well done, but. And he said to him, verse 19, and you are to be over five cities. So we see one working more diligently than the other. Both are rewarded. Of my kingdom that I have, of the however many cities that were part of that kingdom, one is going to reign over ten, one's going to reign over five. Verse 20. Another came. That Greek word for another, by the way, is heteros. It means another of a different kind. Not from the same group, but of a different kind. Another. Heteros. That's where we get the word heterodoxy. Typically used in churches. But it means something completely different than, say, orthodoxy. Which is the accepted norm. Something that's orthodox is accepted. Something that's heterodox is unaccepted. This is the another. Another came. He's not going to be of the same, the same uh, um, I don't know what word would be for it. He's not of the same kind as the first two. He's a human. And as uh, one of the slaves of the nobleman, he is still part of his kingdom. And he came and he said, Master or Lord, here's your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. Wow. You know, because handkerchiefs are really secure areas. If you want to protect something, put it in a handkerchief. If you drop it, it's just secure. And there's no, you know, there's locks on handkerchiefs that you can't, 
can never get into. Remember, I have the gift of sarcasm. I have kept it put away in a handkerchief. In other words, I cared so little for it, I wrapped it up in a piece of cloth that I blow my nose in. Why? Verse 21, for I was afraid of you. Afraid of me? Why would you be afraid of me? Because you are an exacting man. That Greek word means to be harsh or severe. I'm afraid of you. You're harsh. You're severe. Notice what it is. You take up what you did not lay down. What is someone who takes up what they don't lay down? That's a thief. If you take something that you didn't put in the ground, maybe you planted some seeds, somebody else planted some seeds, and you came over and said, I think I'll take that. Grab it up. That's called thievery. What's he calling the nobleman? You're a thief. You frighten me. I'm afraid of you. You take what you did not, and he says, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, Verse 22, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. That word for worthless in the Greek text is it's paneros. It's the same word used for wicked and evil, translated in English elsewhere. So this particular one hid this valuable mina, three months worth of wages, in a cloth, because he was afraid of the one that gave it to him, afraid because he's a little too harsh, a little too exacting, thinks that he's a thief. In other words, he's saying, look, if I would have taken your money, like my brothers here did, and made money with it, you'd have taken it. You take what's not yours. If I would have put it somewhere and lost it, you'd have disciplined me for it. So, I'm just going to play it safe. I'm going to give you back what you gave me. You'd think maybe the noble one would go, huh, well, okay. No, look at what he calls him. You evil, wicked, worthless slave. What does that tell you about what God will do when he faces you, when you face him upon his arrival? What did God give you? When I was a youth, I remember a youth minister saying this over and over in one particular sermon. What did God give you and what did you do with it? What did God give you and what did you do with it? But we're not, what did you do with it yet? We are, what are you doing with it? We haven't been summoned yet to account for it. You see, these are the kinds of people that are mad at God today. These are the kinds of people... Uh, I won't, some are in the church, I suppose, in churches that try to make them feel good. But they're the kinds of people that lost someone they loved. And they're mad at God for it. You took my dad when I was young. You took my brother. You took my sister. You took my friend when I was young. You take people when you shouldn't take them. Who are we to tell God that? Who are we to be mad at God? It's the most absurd thing I've ever heard of. Being angry at God? You took what you did not, or what you should not have taken, someone I love. Or, I, I'm not going to give my money to the church. The church doesn't need my money. The church will benefit from my money and I won't. Or, I'll, if I give to the church, I just don't have the money, and so they've got it and I don't. They're either going to use it wrongly or I'm not going to, one way or the other, I'm not going to have it. Others like to, they will not give to the church. We're going to go give to a missionary so that we can see what our money does. That's called faithless giving, folks. Faithless. Selfish and faithless. You want to see. Does God ever say, make sure you put your money where you can see it bearing fruit? You see, God set up the church of Jesus Christ on the earth. That's the only thing he established. We give to it for its glory, for his honor. So it's people who give or don't give for all the wrong reasons and have something against God and they have this chip on their shoulder. They're angry at God. You're harsh and severe. Note what God calls them when he comes back. Worthless, 
Did you not know that I'm an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. The bank here is not like your first national bank that we might go to. Uh, it's, it means a table. Go over there to the table, over the money changer, put my money over there, and let that money changer use it and draw interest, and I can at least come back and have interest. You don't have to do anything except put it on deposit. They had that then. And he said, I could have collected it with interest when, when I came back. Verse 24. Then he, that's the noble one, said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Now, of course, this draws everyone's fairness and unfairness stuff. Master, he has ten minas already. Why would you give more to one who already has so much? I think the answer unspoken here is because he was that diligent. You see, there's those that are really diligent with what God gives them, their money, talents, abilities. They're really diligent. Being a Christian for them is a full-time task. They don't take days off from being a Christian. Everywhere they go, it's about sharing Christ in some fashion, maybe with words, maybe indeed. Maybe handing a tract. But they're always ready. With their families, with their friends, with strangers, they're always ready. They're always engaging and trying to engage in ministry. And then there's those who gain 500. They're kind of in and out. They're not as diligent. I can't really pinpoint these. It might be me. I hope it's not. I like to think I'm the one earning 10. I don't, I want to be that person. At least put it that way. I want to be that guy. I want to be the most diligent. I know in my heart it's not so that I can get more. It's just, why else am I here? I'm not here to entertain. I'm, I'm here as you are to promote Jesus Christ, right? I mean, if salvation was simply for, for God trying to bring us to heaven, then the moment we come to know Jesus, he'd kill us and take us to heaven. But he doesn't. He leaves us here for what? To do business. To do business. The question would be, are we? So Jesus answers from the nobleman. They said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. Jesus says, I tell you that everyone who has more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. This is not about fairness. It's not even about giftedness. It's about faithfulness. We know that there are many people out there more gifted than us. I do. Far more gifted than me. I've seen them. Um, and all of them, God has gifted them far and above me. But it's not about how God is going to give more to the greaterly, to the greaterly, to, the, to those that are more gifted. God will give more to those who are faithful with what they have. With what you have. You might say, I don't have anything. Oh, you got something. You had enough to say, I don't have anything. You got a voice. You got fingers that can type. You got a mind that can think. What are you doing with it? Without using it, it's just use it or lose it. It will be taken away. But these enemies of mine, verse 27, who did not want me to reign over them, I forgive them because I'm a God of love. If you don't have a Bible, that's probably what you think it says. No, let me read it again. But these enemies of mine, remember back in verse 14 in the parable, there are citizens who hated him, didn't want him to go away and come back a king. Jesus deals with them. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. I want you to turn over to the book of Revelation. It's the last book of the, Old, of the New Testament. Book of Revelation. Shall I give my normal lesson that I give on the book of Revelation? It doesn't have an S on the end of it. When you say Revelations, you lose all credibility with the person you're talking to. I didn't tell you to turn to the book of Luke's. It is the book of Revelation, the apocalypse of John. Apocalypse of Jesus to John, I should say. In Revelation chapter 19, here's that last scene 
as it plays out. You see, the book of Revelation, or chapter 19 in the book of Revelation, is about the second coming of Jesus. The tribulation time period from chapter 6 through 18 has the world in an all-out mess. People are dead. There's blood everywhere. The earth is mangled. And what's left standing will greet Jesus when he returns. Revelation 19, verse 17. By the way, there will be believers then and unbelievers. Jesus calls them the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25. But in Revelation 19, verse 17, John says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. Yes, it says birds. Assemble the birds. Come for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both freemen and slaves, and small and great. The great bird feast of unbelievers who are still standing at Jesus' return. Well, that's what the parable tells us. These enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. I wouldn't want to be an enemy of Jesus. I used to be. I was cute to my parents, uh, only to my parents. I've seen my baby pictures. <clears throat> Only a father and mother could love me. Um, I was an enemy of God the moment I was conceived, even before I was ugly and born, as were you. I was an enemy of God, as are all humans. Enemies of God the moment we are conceived. When we are born, we may be loved and beautiful to our parents, but we are enemies of God under His wrath. Kind of strange to think, isn't that? Only until such a time as we receive the Lord Jesus Christ do we become his children. Now, what happens if a baby dies? Will a baby die and go to hell because they're enemies? That question is not answered in Scripture. Nor I, as a counselor, would I ever tell a young mother who has lost a child, say, well, kid didn't have faith, he's in hell. I don't believe that. But I, I, I don't know that. I can't tell you that babies go to heaven when they die. If that was in the Bible, everyone would kill their babies. Wouldn't they? That would be the greatest way to get your kid to heaven. Just have the baby and kill them. Who cares if you spend the rest of your life in jail? Your baby's going to heaven. It's not in the Bible. There is some time of accountability at some point. But the point being is that we are enemies of God until such a time as we receive the peace treaty. That's God having become flesh, living our life, dying our death. We believe Him by faith. We are saved. Best news you'll ever hear. It's the news in which we are most thankful for. Let's take a look a little bit deeper on the, the reigning with Jesus. What does it mean that these first two, they have a return on their master's investment, and they're said that they're going to reign? Turn with me back to the book of... Revelation. See, you learned something today. Even if I bored you to tears and everything else, you learned to pronounce the book of Revelation properly. Chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Yours should be nice and, and outlined up because of our study in that a couple of years back. Highlighted. Well-worn. Revelation chapter 20. The context of Revelation 20, remember I told you Revelation 19 is the second coming of Jesus. What does Jesus do when he, hits, when he stands on the earth? He sets up his kingdom, his 1,000-year kingdom called the millennial kingdom. Those of us who were in Christ, we were either raptured before we died or we died and we rose to be with Jesus in the clouds at the moment the rapture occurred. Seven years later, we return with Jesus in our glorified bodies and we're going to do something here it is. In fact, not only us, but when Jesus returns, all those who weren't part of the church, that's Old Testament saints, will also be resurrected. And they too will do something for eternity. And John says, he says this in chapter, Revelation 20 verse 4, he said, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus... And because of the word of God, that would be those tribulation saints who were dying during that seven years where it was illegal to be a Christian. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads and on their hand, note this, and they came to life and reigned with Christ 
for a thousand years, reigned with Christ. The disciples, when they asked Jesus, what about us, Lord? We've given up everything to follow you. Jesus tells them in Matthew 19, verse 28, he said, I tell you the truth. At the, at the regeneration, that is, at the second coming when God regenerates the earth in what we call the millennial kingdom, Jesus tells them in Matthew 19, 28, pointing to the 12 apostles, you will sit on 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. What about the Gentiles? I'm not a Jew. Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, that we will reign and judge. What does it say there in chapter 6? It's we're not to go to loss, make lawsuits against each other. Christians are not to sue other Christians. If you're going through a divorce and you're Christians, first of all, shame on you. You shouldn't be. But if you must, you don't get a lawsuit against the other and try to take the other one for all they're worth. That, that would be sinful. And Jesus is saying through Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, he said, don't you know that we will judge angels? Can't you deal with certain common matters on the earth? So even Gentiles will judge and be judges over the realm that Jesus comes back to rule. He went away. He died. He was resurrected. He ascended into heaven. He said, I'm coming back. And that's what we await. We wait his return where he comes back and reigns over the entire planet, the entire universe, which he already is in name anyway, the ruler. But in actuality, he does this. What do we do? Sit on clouds and play a harp? Absolutely not. Those who are faithful will reign with him. We are co-regents with our God and Savior. And what we do now, what we've been given here on earth, the little we've been given, if we're faithful with the little here, we will be given much in that time. That's what it's saying. Some are very faithful. The guy that took one and made it into ten. Some are averagely faithful. The guy that took one and made it into five. Some are in the church and they think God is a liar. They don't like God. Now, I have read commentaries and listened to sermons. Some believe that the third guy is just a really bad Christian, but a Christian nonetheless. I don't. I don't. In fact, I went back and forth, and I was changing commentaries that I'm reading or blogs this, this morning. I'm going, okay, let's just say it is, possibly. I, I don't see God calling one of his own worthless. And I don't see any of God's people thinking God is a liar. The, the, the thinking of this third guy in the book of Luke, I'll go back to Luke 17. The thinking of is that you're an exacting man. I don't think that of God, nor should anyone who is a child of God. Isn't the earth God's? How can God take what isn't his? Is it okay for God to give birth to a human being and then take that human being when he deems it necessary in death? Of course it is. Who are we to question God in that way? Yet we do it. You took my baby, Lord. I will not speak to you again. Do we think God's in heaven going, oh, I'm sorry. How can I make that up to you? I'm mad at you, God. Or we're going to quit praying for a while. That'll really show God, won't it? We'll quit praying. Or we'll quit giving. We'll quit serving. We're just going to have a chip on our shoulder. If anybody asks us, we're just going to be mad at God. Playing the victim card. It's people do it all the time. God did this to me. God took that from me. From you? Really? It was never yours. Not your health. Not your money. Not the people you love. We are aliens here. God made us here. He gives us things for which to be responsible when he decides to take them away. What did Job say when he lost everything? Job looked at his life and he said, okay, I've lost my 10 children. I've lost everything I own. He left my wife, which became a curse too. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb. Because we do. We don't come with any baby clothes. We come naked. And naked, he says, I shall return there. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Say it, class. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That, my Christian friends, is a Christian. That is a believer. That is one who knows who God is. Having lost everything, anyone can give praise to God for what they have. We sat around the tables this week and we said, Lord, thank you for this food. Thank you for this family. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Would you say it if he took it all away? Would you say what Job said when it was all gone? 
or would you play that victim card? Lord, you clearly take things that don't belong to you. You clearly did this, you did that, and I did this, and you did not repay me the way I should have been repaid. Why do anything? I don't think that's a Christian. In fact, if you look over with me to Matthew's gospel, Matthew 25, there's a a very similar parable called the parable of the talents. Matthew chapter 25 Beginning in verse 14. Instead of talent, instead of minas, I should say, Matthew speaks of talents, uh, which is also a measure of money or a measure of ability. We say today you have talent. Um, but it looks like it's, it's a measure of money in this regard. And talents were a measure of money in that day. You've got one guy who's given five, but the difference here is that... Um, in chapter, uh, Matthew 25, 14, he said, it's just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one, he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. Note this, each according to his own ability. So he's gifting each one of them or he's giving them things in accordance with their ability. The minas doesn't say that. He gives 10 people and he gives each of them one mina. Each of them gets three months worth of wages. Here in the talents, it's another story altogether, and it's about giving to people in accordance with their giftedness. One gets five, one got two, one got one. He went on his journey, came back. The guy that had five made ten. The guy that had two made four, and the guy with one buried it in the ground. Here's what he says to the guy that buried it in the ground. Chapter Chapter 25, verse 24. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master... I knew, you be, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. What's his view of God? You're a thief and you're unfair. And I was afraid. And I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, here's what's yours. I brought it back. It's yours. Take it. You broke even with me. I think God would much rather of us say, Lord, I put it all to work and I got nothing to show for it, but I put it to work. Note what the master says in verse 26. Master answered, you wicked, lazy slave. Would God call one of his own children that? I don't think so. Wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to put my money in the bank. And on arrival, I would have received the money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him. Give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given. And he, should, he will have an abundance For from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. And then note what he does with him. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sound like heaven? Sound like a believer who lost some rewards? You know why it doesn't sound like that? Because it's not. Oh, there are people out there today that will tell you, no, he was a servant. And if he's a servant to the master, then that's once saved, always saved. It's a parable. That's not what it says at all. But does not God use everyone he made? Even unbelievers, does God not use the devil himself for his own purposes? We read in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. God calls a wicked, horrible nation, the Assyrians. Not the Syrians, they were bad too, but the Assyrians. He says, you are the rod of my anger. And he used Assyria to chastise his beloved Israel. He sent in a godless nation to chastise his people. They are what? His servants. Does that mean they're all Christians? They're God's people? No. God uses all. So those that would say, well, the slave in the parable of the talents and the slave in the parable of the minas, well, that's a slave. They go to heaven, but they don't get any rewards. I don't think so. Folks, that's a very liberal way of preaching that text. That gives anyone who hears this today the ability to go home and say, well, clearly, I believed in Jesus. I'm going to heaven. I don't have to do a cotton-picking thing. Please don't leave with that attitude because it ain't right. And even if it is, we'll only know it at the Bema seat of Christ, at the judgment seat. Well, Lord, you said that all I had to do was believe. And Jesus is going to say, yeah, but... The way, if you believe, isn't that 
solidified by how you treated me? Whether you loved me, you called me a liar and a cheater, you said I was unjust and unfair. Yeah, I said all those things. Then how can you be part of my kingdom? You have no fruit in the way you lived. You may have said certain things, but you believed something else. No, no. Don't believe that ridiculousness and don't follow anyone who does. The fruit of a believer, the fruit of a true believer is bearing some fruit with what God has given them. It may not be like the guy that made 10 out of one. It might more resemble the guy that did five with the one. But it would be very liberal to look at that and say, well, he was a slave. He was a slave, so uh, he didn't do much. and He's just not going to have a whole lot. He won't get to reign over anything, but he'll be in heaven. I'm sure he'll be happy because there's no one unhappy in heaven. That doesn't preach. What else doesn't preach is me telling you you can do whatever you want after you quote-unquote come to know Jesus by faith. That doesn't preach, and if it doesn't preach, I'm not preaching it. In other words, I'm not going to get up here and say, believe in Jesus, have an intellectual ascent that says, I know he died on that cross, I know he rose from the dead, I'm in, he's a God of love, I believe that, and I will counter as I always do, well, the devil believes all that too. Remember those wicked angels, those demons who confronted Jesus and they said things like, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. Okay, it's one thing to know who he is, but do you bow to him as Lord? couple notes before we go. Note, none of them considered the Mina to be their own. Each one of them said, your Mina has done this. Your Mina has done this. Some do great things for God, as I said. Some just do average. Let me preach to you as I looked in the mirror and preached to myself, Lance, don't be average. Now, mind you, I'm not out there to try to make a name for myself. I, I don't want to be that guy. I, I can't, I'm not equipped to be that guy. I don't want to be famous. I don't care how big this church is. I don't care. I want to be a pastor to the people who are here. And, and I'm, my bandwidth is about at the end with the, the, the 400 so or so people that come to this church. I want to be a good pastor. I want to know your names. I want to know the names of your children. I want to be able to pray for everyone every week by name and know you. I want that. I want to be able to go into God's Word and study it during the week. I'm not doing anything but studying, and I'm ready to preach it, and I want to preach it accurately. And I want to love my family. And I want to do all the things I want to do. Mind you, I'm, I don't. I strive to do it. I'm kind of like Paul in Romans chapter 7. The things I want to do, I don't do. You know, something comes before me. And how many of you this week have struggled with materialism? I mean, how many emails do I get from someone, you know, just beware. When you go buy a pair of shoes at Johnson and Murphy and they say, what's your email? Don't give it. They're going to keep sending stuff and they're going to sell it to others and you're going to get it from leather places all over the planet. What about our sale? Our sale. Well, I could get that. That's a good sale. I'll never get another good deal like that. Boom, 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 boom. God, the things I don't want to do, I do. I look at that. I need that. No, I don't need that. No, I don't want that. I have enough. I just confess to you that's one of my struggles. I want to be Great, but not for my own benefit. And I want to make sure I know that it's not for my own benefit. I want to do great things for Christ, and I never want to let down my guard. Don't you? I want to be the guy that earned 10. True disciples want Jesus to reign. They're not afraid of him reigning. We want him to come back. That's why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Lord, send your kingdom, but your will be done in your time and your place. And we're patient with that. True disciples, as Paul says, have been entrusted with the gospel. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. We have been entrusted with the gospel. We have been given a measure of faith. We've been entrusted with certain amounts of money. It's God's money. What are you doing with the money? What are you doing with your talents? What are you doing with the gospel? Are you sharing it? Are you giving it? Are you living a different life and, and preaching it? Those don't go together. Call that hypocrisy. What are you doing with it? What if he comes back today? What will your answer be? By the way, we will all stand. There's two different judgment seats, mind you. The judgment seat that Christians go before is described in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. It's called the Bema seat, B-E-M-A. The Bema seat judgment, the Bema seat of Christ, where all Christians go. The first two in this parable, that's the Bema seat. 
We go before and we answer for what we've been given as Christians. The judgment, we're not in, in danger of hell, but we are going to be assigned certain responsibilities in the afterlife. That's the beam of seat judgment. All Christians go there. Then there's the great white throne judgment of God where all unbelievers go. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. They go before the great white throne and they first find when the pages are turned in the book of life, their name ain't there. And they are cast into the eternal fires of hell, the lake of fire. There's only two judgments. One of them will go to account for what God has given to us, what we did with it. One of them we will go to receive our sentence for eternal death. Which one's it going to be for you? There's no in between. There's no purgatory. There's no way to get out of dying. We will face our maker. What's the fruit you're bearing? Is it plump and juicy? Or is it rotten and stinking? Jesus is coming back. He will return. He went away to receive a kingdom. And he's coming back at a time when we don't know. What did God give you? And what are you doing with it? Let's pray. Father, call to mind to all of us today your gifts, all that you have given to us. Make us, put us under conviction over what we've done and what we could do better. How we might serve this church, how we might give for the first time or even more. How we might spew forth greater thankfulness over what we do have. May we strive in the interim time period between the day you went to receive the kingdom and the day you return with that kingdom. May we strive to be active, to produce fruit in keeping with our salvation. And Lord, I pray that you would bring to mind our wonderful salvation. If we can remember who you are, what you did for these wretched sinners, for us wretched sinners, we will serve you faithfully with a great smile on our face. May we do that until you come and may you find us full of faith and serving you. With we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Happy Thanksgiving, Merry Christmas. May God bless you. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 